This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We know ERP works. We know it's the gold standard. And also, we know that we need to have alternative options for these teens that they are not, you know, coming easy piece into therapy. And they really want to exercise this natural capacity they have to choose. You're listening to Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. If you are a psychologist, social worker, marriage and family therapist, substance abuse counselor, nurse, or other mental health professional or student that's interested in developing your skills and act, which could be particularly helpful right now for your communities and clients, 
we'd highly recommend you check out some of the online programming at Praxis. You can find them at praxiscet.com. They have uh, trainings in ACT 1, sort of foundational training in ACT, as well as applying ACT with specific populations. They have training in using ACT for trauma, as well as ACT with teens in the DNA V model, ACT for OCD, ACT with parents. It's a great resource, and we hope that you can check them out at praxiscet.com. You can also find them on our website. Take care. Hi, everybody. It's Jill here, and I'm here with Yael, and we have an episode today with Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona, or Dr. Z, and she came to talk to me about her new workbook that is treating teens with obsessive-compulsive disorder, and we recorded this episode before the pandemic and before we um, all ended up in quarantine And, you know, so we're aware that in this current context, people's anxiety levels have really increased. And certainly those with OCD are struggling, especially OCD that's contamination related. And so we didn't talk a lot about um, specifics around OCD and the obsessions and the compulsions. But Debbie's going to be interviewing Dr. Lisa Coyne in a future episode where they will be able to talk about that. In this episode, though, we talk a lot about a novel treatment approach to OCD, which combines exposure and response prevention, the gold standard treatment for OCD, with acceptance and commitment therapy. And Yael, I'm curious about your thoughts about the episode. Well, I I loved it. I, I love the idea of combining this gold standard treatment that you know, I'm just remembering back to being taught exposure and response prevention in grad school and how powerful it is to to have that learning happen around areas that create so much anxiety for so many individuals. What's so beautiful about incorporating acceptance and commitment therapy with exposure and response prevention, and, and Dr. Z talks a lot about this, is that ERP is really hard to do, right? If somebody's terrified of spiders and you are asking them to draw nearer to spiders and expose themselves and not to engage in those avoidance behaviors, it's really terrifying. It's extremely uncomfortable. It's so aversive. And ACT really gives people a lot of strategies to uh, find values that can carry them through to develop mindfulness and awareness. And so I love the way that she combines them it's, it's such a more approachable treatment, I think, when you put those two together. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I've noticed that with my own clients and in my own life as well, that anytime you attach values or what matters deeply in your own heart, it increases the willingness to do hard things. And I think she does outline that well. And there's a lot of really cool strategies that she talks about in here with a particular focus on the choice point, which is a sort of simple, not not easy, but simple way to think about approaching feared stimuli in a way that's connected to values. And that frankly, I use myself lots of times throughout every day, whether it's based on something fear related, or just, you know, making a choice that's either in the service of avoidance or being more comfortable or in the service of um, my values and being the person I want to be. So I think people will get a lot out of learning that in this episode. Yeah, I loved both of your references uh, in the episode to Man's Search for Meaning, because he talks a lot about choice in there, that, you know, circumstances can be dire, but we always have a choice in how we respond. And I think you and Dr. Z talk a lot about that. The other quote that I love that's quoted in Man's Search for Meaning is the Nietzsche quote, 
he who has a why can bear any how. And that's really a reference to the power of values. I love that. And I think that that could not be more relevant than it is right now, as we're all home together, struggling through this pandemic and quarantine and knowing that in between stimulus and response, there's that place for choice. Yeah. And, and where we're presented with those opportunities to choose based on values many, many times throughout every day. Okay. Well, enjoy this episode with Dr. Z. Hi, everybody. It's Jill here. And today I am thrilled to be interviewing my friend and colleague, Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona, or Dr. Z, as many call her. She's the author of the amazing new book, The Act Workbook for Teens with OCD, Unhook Yourself and Live Life to the Full. Dr. Z is a licensed clinical psychologist in California. Her clinical work started first as a school psychologist and then as a clinical psychologist. She has significant experience working with children, adolescents, and adults with OCD, trauma, anxiety, and emotion regulation problems. Dr. Z is the founder of the East Bay Behavior Therapy Center, a boutique therapy practice where she runs an intensive outpatient program integrating acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and exposure and response prevention, or ERP. Her clinical work is dedicated to helping all her clients to get unstuck and live the lives they were meant to live. Welcome, Patricia. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be chatting with you today. Good. I'm excited to be chatting with you too. So we heard your your bio just there, but I'm wondering if you could start um, by telling us a little bit more about yourself. And specifically, I'm interested in your background and what led you to a career-focused on the treatment of OCD. And I'll add one other thing to that too, is you seem to kind of have this dual expertise where you're doing OCD, anxiety, trauma, but then also emotion regulation and DBT. So I'm interested in how you kind of landed in in both of these areas. Um, That's a great question. So one of the things that happened to me uh, personally is that I had my first panic attack in my early 20s when I was driving on the freeway and I actually had an intrusive image. I saw myself die in a car accident and I started hyperventilating. I hold a wheel really, really hard in the car. Um, and I really had the first experience with something so uncomfortable and the fear. I was petrified with fear about this, this image about dying. Um, since then, since very early, anxiety has morphed in different ways in my life. I had fears about making mistakes, fears about choosing the right partner, uh, fears about public speaking, fears about making the right financial decision. So I think in my life, I had to learn to overcome my own relationship with fear and just really learn to make room for fear and do the things that are really important to my heart. Um, so I'm coming from a place of speaking from the inside out about how it means to be paralyzed when you're stuck with fear. Professionally, I was very fortunate that during my doctoral training, I bumped into my mentor who became a long life friend, Matt McKay. And he is very passionate about working with emotion regulation, complex presentations, so over the years working with him, that's how I developed expertise. It was through my work 
in collaboration with him to different projects that we did together. However, the evolution of my clinical work has gone from working on emotion regulation through fear-based struggles, which is really what I relate a lot, whether that's working with clients with social anxiety, chronic worry, analysis paralysis, people that get stuck making a decision. I think my heart has landed there. And it was, I think, in some way, a natural evolution from approaching general emotion regulation problems or stuff that is driven by multiple emotional states to this particular niche of how are we responding to fear. So that's a little bit the sequence that I had on my training. And the last, I would say, I don't know, maybe 10 years, I have been really focused on that, just working more with how we're relating to fear, to worries, to anxiety, to obsessions, and building more expertise on that particular area. Mm-hmm. Well, you seem to have a, a special place in your heart for OCD specifically, and this workbook that you've written is fantastic, and it clearly shows your your passion for treating OCD and for helping teens who have OCD. Is there anything specific about treating OCD that you find particularly inspiring? Or I always joke, I'm also an anxiety expert, and I always joke that anxiety gets my heart beating. It's my like dorky mom joke. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Is, Is there anything about OCD that you feel specifically drawn to? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, I think one of the things that we know so far is that when a person gets stuck with panic attacks or with social anxiety, it usually takes them one to two years to ask for proper help to go to therapy. When a person gets stuck with OCD, we're looking at eight to 10 years of really suffering and struggle with these obsessions before asking for help. And I have witnessed that many times in my practice. I'm sure you have seen the same. So mm-hmm. how OCD gets undiagnosed, and despite um, mental health professionals, we're doing our best to share about the effective treatments, we still have a large number of people that they don't know that is struggling with OCD, and they go into massive degrees of avoidance or massive copying, trying to replace thoughts, trying to do EMDR, trying to do biofeedback, trying to do touch therapy, and all types of interventions, they simply make the OCD worst. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that was one of the things that I witnessed firsthand as many clinicians, how OCD can be really paralyzing in a person's life to the point that makes them doubt who they are, right? Do they really, really mean that? Do they have hidden intentions? Is there something dark within themselves? And that's really, really, I think, heartbreaking. I have seen Mm -hmm. that with the kids, with adults working. So I think the degree in which OCD can severely affect a person's life, um, it's really um, humongous. And I think that we always have to do a better job disseminating and sharing information about what OCD is, not what the social media has trivialized. Mm-hmm. I relate to that so much. And I think one of the most heartbreaking things I see in my own practice is when people come with OCD, similar to what you said, where they've had um, actually harmful past therapy experiences. But the thing I see specifically is people who have harm OCD, 
where, Mm -hmm. you know, they're afraid that they're either going to have an impulse to hurt themselves or to hurt someone else, or they may have an impulse to engage in inappropriate sexual behavior with a child or a family member that when they get really brave and confess these really difficult thoughts to providers who aren't really educated in what OCD is, they're misunderstood as being suicidal or being a danger to other people. And it's just so incredibly damaging that the pain that these folks are struggling with already on their own, and then they trust and open up and share these obsessions, and then essentially are misdiagnosed by people who don't understand. So it's a cause that's very close to my heart too, is trying Mm -hmm. to get more information and education out there. And and we've actually had a number of people reach out to the podcast requesting more um, episodes that are specific to OCD. So I think people are going to be really happy to hear from you. Well, I, I, I really relate to the experiences you shared, and I appreciate the effort you guys are doing to put that word out mm-hmm. there about effective interventions for OCD. Um, mm-hmm. I think I encountered the same thing a couple of weeks ago, client of mine asked me about if changing the diet of the team will alleviate the OCD symptoms. Um, even though we do our best to disseminate effective interventions, there is a lot of just really non-evidence-based information out there. And for some reason, sometimes people get access to them. So I think the more that we do to disseminate what works, the less harm and less stuckness people are going to have. Absolutely. And especially when we have such powerful treatments. I mean, OCD is one of the things that psychotherapy treats the most effectively when evidence-based methods are used. So along those lines, exposure and response prevention, or ERP, is considered the gold standard treatment for OCD because it has the most research to support that it works well to treat OCD. And you did something really cool with this workbook. You combined traditional ERP with acceptance and commitment therapy. So one thing I'm curious about, if we know ERP is a strong treatment, what motivated you to combine it with ACT? But before we go there, um, maybe you could break down the treatments a little bit for any of our listeners who may not be well-versed in OCD or ERP or ACT, can you just talk a little bit about what is ERP and how does it work and maybe briefly about ACT? I think most of our listeners um, have a fair amount of knowledge about ACT. And then we can talk about what motivated you to combine the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about exposure response prevention, ERP, I am thinking about helping clients to approach any particular situation, activity, object, or person they are afraid of and they have been avoiding or they have been engaging in compulsions. Uh, So ERP is definitely the gold standard of treatment. We know it works. And it's really about helping people, again, to get in contact with what what has become an adversive stimuli. Uh, You develop exposure hierarchies, and you are keeping track of people's levels of anxiety through the course of treatment and between sessions. And when I think about ACT, I am thinking about an approach that is evidence-based with a lot of science behind, but in the nutshell helps a person to figure out what matters, to do what matters, and to make room for all the yucky stuff and all types of experiences that may come along when you do what matters. 
So that will be my, my brief definition or conceptualization of how I see ACT. Mm-hmm. So when you're combining them, you're essentially continuing to do exposures, but tying those to what matters to someone in their life. I think the way that I think about how to blend ACT and ERP, certainly because ACT is a very flexible model and I don't have the absolute truth about how to do it. But what I do is I can share with you how I do it and that's what I did on the book. I think within ACT, the exposure are a means towards values-based living. It's not the outcome of. It's actually every time you're doing something that is important to you, If you really want to, for example, if you want to spend time with your sister and you have some fears about being pedophile or harming her, spending time with your sister because it matters to you to be caring means that you also have to learn to make room for all those unwanted thoughts, to make room for all those fears that may show up. So within ACT, exposure is the mean towards being the person I want to be, the means to show up to my relationships as I want to show up. It's not the end of therapy. It's really another intervention, a powerful one that we do to help people to live a fulfilling life. So that's a little bit how ACT and ERP, they will always go together because both approaches have a, they have built in acceptance and they also have built in how to approach and how to get in contact with our worst fears. The big addition that ACT is doing is that it's all in the service of values, always. Every single thing you do in the therapy, it's really about checking how do I want to show up in this world and in this moment of a struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from a theoretical standpoint, you know, people who have been trained as cognitive behavioral therapists, and ERP is a specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy, who are then trained to do acceptance and commitment therapy sometimes get stuck in that, you know, ACT is under the larger umbrella of CBT, but they're theoretically very different. And so traditional exposure, um, you know, I guess long ago, traditional exposure was based strictly on habituation. You face the things that you're afraid of and they get less scary over time. And more recently, I think Michelle Krask was the first lab to come out with these findings that, What's really important isn't the habituation in terms of predicting outcome, but looking at what do you predict is going to happen and what actually happens and new learning takes place as you see that those are two different things. Um, But the focus in ERP is still on change and control. It's still on reducing anxiety, changing the way you evaluate the dangerousness of a situation or a stimulus. So how do you handle that? I guess I'm curious how you think about it personally, given that you're trained in both and, you know, we're behaviorists at the core of all of this, right? But theoretically, they are somewhat different. So I'm curious first how you think about it and then how you um, explain that, if at all, to clients. That's a great question, and um, I think allows me to think a lot in terms of how the exposures look different. If you're doing traditional ERP, whether that's based on the habituation model or the inhibitor learning model, or when you're doing ACT-based exposure, um, 
Like you, I have been traditionally trained on behaviorists. I was trained in Bolivia, initially as a school psychologist, and I was doing these massive exposures, right? Just taking a look to SATs, making sure that SATs go down. So when I learn in ACT, I have to relearn what therapy is about um, and just really capture all these behavioral principles. When I'm thinking about blending ACT and ERP, um, as I say, one of the key differences is that within the act-based exposure, everything is about values. Every single thing you do, every intervention you teach your clients, every skill, it's really all about helping them to figure out what is important to them and taking those steps. Um, within act, also when doing exposure, we're always looking at the workability of those behaviors. When I think about workability, I, we're thinking not in terms whether an obsession is true or not, whether this fear about harming my children is true or not, positive or negative. It's really when I get hooked and trapped with this thought, what do I do? And is that behavior helping me the mother or the person I want to be or is taking me away? So we teach clients the workability of their behaviors during the exposure also in a traditional ERP exposure, you will be keeping track of the SATs. If your client has fears of contamination, for example, are part of the exposure hierarchies to touch a doorknob, you will be looking at the SATs before the client is touching the doorknob and while the person is touching the doorknob. And let me just jump in for one second yeah. for anyone who doesn't know what a SUDS is, just in case. SUDS stands for Subjective Units of Distress Score. And it's just a, um, it's a label that we use because different people call their anxiety different things. They might call it anxiety, fear, stress, distress, discomfort. So SUDS is a way that we sort of have a common language and people typically give a SUDS rating that's either from zero to 10 or zero to 100. So I just wanted to clarify that so people know what you're talking about. Thank you so much for clarifying. Great, great point. Great point. So in a traditional exposure exercise, if a person has fears of contamination and exposure activities touching a doorknob, then we will check how are you feeling right now, what are your thoughts, what are your anxiety levels from 1 to 10 or 1 to 100. Uh, can you touch this doorknob? Can you move your hands when touching the doorknob? And I keep asking about the thoughts. I will continue doing that until the thoughts went to the half of the starting point. So if my client had levels of anxiety level 70, I will continue inviting my client to touch the doorknob until the anxieties go to level 35 or 30. So that was the habituation model. We thought that exposure works when the anxiety goes down. Um, and that's when maybe we had a lot of literature at the time about the anxiety cure, anxiety-free life, zero anxiety. But later on, Michelle Krask and UCLA, she came up with this amazing study looking at all the cases in which actually there were treatment refractory cases, anxiety came back, the fear-based situations, the fear-based struggles show up again for some clients. And in her new study in the habituation, uh, in the inhibitory learning model, we're basically looking that anxiety is a learning process that new learning experiences are going to block the activation of old associations. So if I was afraid about touching the doorknob, the more that I'd learn to touch the doorknob at home, at the school, in my office, in the train station, 
all those new learning experiences are going to block the old activation of the threat-based association. With Michelle Kraske's work, we also learned that exposure exercises don't have to be hierarchical. People don't have to go level one, two, three, four, five. You want to have more variability of experiences. You want to remove safety crutches. Um, and you also want to facilitate the combination of different exposures, right? For example, if I'm afraid about public speaking, I may jump up and down. I may have my heart beating fast and then will give a speech for one, two minutes, right? You are basically blending two types of exposures, interoceptive exposure using my body and a situational exposure. So ACT capitalizes and augments the findings of inhibitor learning model. The difference is that in the process of doing exposure, you are not looking track at the SATs. Again, the model is very flexible. It's quite likely that within the ACT community, there are therapists who still keep track of the SATs. I don't. I am more interested in looking at how my clients are relating to internal processes. So I will ask questions like, okay, are we having the thought? Is the thought popping up? Are you getting hooked on the thought? Are we, can we loosen up? What do we need to do to loosen up to the thought? Is that emotion kicking in? How do we want to relate to the thought? In this moment, what are the choices for us? So I am more interested in how my clients are relating to those to those thoughts, those images, to those sensations that are adversive for them. And basically, I'm keeping track of the processes, right? I'm keeping track of acceptance. I'm keeping track of diffusion. And I'm always going back to, okay, what works? So what do we do right now? Here we are facing this doorknob. And your mind is telling you all this stuff, don't touch it, don't touch it, run away, right, as fast as possible, bolt to the therapist's office. What do we do with that? By that time in the exposures also, we have built some of the skills like naming the obsession, visualizing the obsession, singing some of the obsessions. So the exposures within the ACT model, they are so much more interactive. They are not these... Um, clean-cut exposure exercises, as you may have had in other models, and certainly as I had been trained before, they are more engaging. They are more interacting in the room. I'm keeping track not of the SADs or whether the anxiety is going up and down. I'm keeping track how we are relating to the insight noise that is showing up. So that will be another difference. Um, the other difference that I noticed within the um, ACT model, at least for me again, because other therapists may have a very different approach, it is important in my work to create a frame or context of change in the work with my clients. So when I have a new client, it's not that we're going to jump right away in that session to do a values-based exposure menu and then approach it. I am more interested in deconstructing and unpacking all these messages they have received about fear, worries, and anxieties. Because even though we are familiar with anxiety is always going to pop up, our clients are not. And they have hundreds of years of socialization that fear is a bad thing, that anxiety is a sign of weakness. So at the beginning of treatment, when I talk about creating this frame of change, it in terms of intervention, I am going to be doing some values-based clarifications. And they're really looking at all those messages that we have about fear, about anxiety, and looking at how they work, what are the behaviors that come along with them. And then we look at how all these OCD episodes have actually been blocking my client's life. 
and then we develop in the values-based exposure menu. Now, the other difference when you are blending ACT and ERP for exposure is that, at least for me, I am paying attention if my clients are approaching the exposure as power into them. I have to do it. You know, I want to get rid of this experience because that will defeat the purpose. I am not saying that we shouldn't help clients to get out of the comfort zone. Absolutely. That's the purpose of exposure. And a values-based life is going to have that. But what I'm also very interested in is building the capacity to choose how to respond to this annoying experience and watching out if that's becoming another controlled response. Like I have to mm-hmm. control this anxiety, have to control this obsession. So I think in the exposure work, right, I'm watching, is my client, you know, powering through and just getting rid of this? What are we choosing? I'm going to make a room for this. I'm noticing that I'm making a feast with my hands so this bad thing doesn't happen. Am I going to release this? I'm going to step back. So I think in that sense, the exposure also looks very different. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you explained that beautifully. Um, and, you know, you, you just brought up the word choice a couple different times. And one of the main act strategies that you discuss in this workbook um, that I haven't seen used before with OCD or with teens is the choice point. So can you walk us through that a little bit, what the choice point is um, and how teens with OCD would use it? Mm-hmm. Will it be okay if I give you a little bit of background about where I was coming from when thinking about the choice point? Absolutely. That's the most interesting, juicy stuff. Let us hear it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that happened to me, and you may have encountered this as well, there were years ago when I was working with a, with a family. A family came because the kid had OCD. And this kid walked in the room completely upset about being in a therapy office. He was so fed up because he saw other therapies. The parents were getting cranky with him. My client had, had fears of contamination and was in therapy for two years. But nothing moved him. He just didn't want to work on this. Um, it's a very tough situation for parents and it's difficult for the teen and for the therapist too, right? We all know <laughs> how that feels. It's Absolutely. just a hard moment, right? But there was something really powerful in the conversation I had with the team. So when I checked, so I get that it's absolutely hard to be here. Can you walk me through that? What's the hardest part about being here with another therapist? 
And the teen was very real. And he told me, my parents are pushing me. And the therapist sometimes just tell me that I have to do this. I just don't like to be told what to do. So to me, that was really this aha moment in which if we think about adolescence, teens don't like to be told what to do, what to think, or what to wear. They're actually in such an amazing time, developmentally speaking, in which they are exploring, they are curious, they are trying. So if we are framing therapy as something that the parents tell a teen to do, even though we know it's with love, even though we know it's with caring, and the teens don't have too much of a choice of a, or a saying, it's a tough thing. So with anxiety, it's already scary. It's tough work to be facing the things that we're afraid of. So when I was talking to this teen, that was, again, the aha moment for me to realize that we know ERP works. We know it's a gold standard. And also we know that we need to have alternative options for these teens that they are not, you know, coming easy piece into therapy. And they really want to exercise this natural capacity they have to choose about a bunch of things. So that was a personal story. And for years, I tried different things <laughs> up and down. My clients always gave me the best feedback as possible. So that choice point, it's certainly a graphic that I use in my work to map every single exposure session. So after I do values work with the teens and we develop the values-based exposure menu, then I introduce them to the choice point. While it's a graphic that I use every single session, it's also another retrieval cue for my clients to remember that they can always choose. When their mind comes up with an obsession, they can choose how to respond to that obsession and they can check whether they are going to be making moves towards their values or they are going to use skills to get unhooked from the obsession. So at the end of treatment, the main goal, it's not too much to be using the paper and pencil of the choice point, which is fun and help us for learning processes, but it's really to augment the teen's capacity to choose how to respond to the yucky stuff that shows up with obsessions. Mm -hmm. So even though our listeners can't see us, it, the graphic is pretty simple, so I think this should be this should be easy. But can you kind of describe, like, so people can get a visual image of what the choice point looks like? Like, what is a teen doing? What are they looking at? What does it look like? And then, what exactly are they doing when they're practicing using the choice point? Got it. So the choice point basically has four sections. At the bottom of the choice point, the things that are going to be writing, the values-based activity or the triggering situation they are encountering. If you are afraid about fears of contamination, you may not want to use the public restroom. If you are afraid about someone stealing your knowledge, you may be avoiding certain person. If you are afraid about stabbing your siblings, you may avoid hanging out in the kitchen or you may avoid being alone with them. So they write down that particular values-based activity at the bottom of the choice point. And next, we write down the obsessions that pop up for them, the obsessions that their mind comes up with. Could I kill my sister? Will I be contaminated if I touch this stain? Did I get contaminated? So they run the obsessions. This difference between the situation and the obsession is super important because many times I think my clients get confused and that's when you hear things, 
well, I was hours and hours in this situation. They don't realize they are already hooked in the OCD episode. Mm -hmm. So after they write this obsession, the obsession that their mind comes up with, that's when they face the choice point. And the choice point on the left side has all the stuff that keeps them hooked on the obsession. So that will include all the avoidance behaviors, all the compulsions, and also other stuff that people do when dealing with anxiety, excessive drinking, um, shopping a lot, right? Getting into fights if someone interrupts you in the compulsions, right? So we map that. And then on the right side of the choice point, you have all the skills they're going to be learning to get unhooked from the obsession. So that's where, in act terms, you have all the diffusion exercises, visualizing obsessions, singing obsessions, physicalizing obsessions. You also have acceptance exercises. I also wrote in the book and a skill that it's refocusing, which is choosing with flexibility where you're going to put your attention. Are you going to put your attention in the inside nose or in the outside? So... In every session, this is how we organize the exposure session. I hand the teens the values-based exposure menu. They choose what they're going to work on, and then we map. We map basically the choice point. We write on the situation, the exposure exercise we're going to do, the most common obsessions they encounter. In the left side, they write down all the things they do that keeps them hooked. And on the right side, we keep adding all the active skills they are learning, primarily the fusion mm -hmm. and acceptance and the exposures they are willing to do. So that's okay. how I do it in every single session. But again, the biggest thing is that the graphic is very user-friendly. The teens like it. They relate to it. But at the core, the choice point really at least my intention was capitalized and remind the teens that no matter where they are, they have it within them, this natural capacity to choose. We just have to mm -hmm. remind them of that, that skill they have already. Yeah. And I think you made that really clear in the workbook. And I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, you started with the choice point to really get them used to it. And they practice it again and, and again and again while you're laying out the rest of the act and ERP skills and knowledge with a constant returning to the choice point. And it's just so developmentally appropriate, as you were saying before, you know, this is a time in their lives where they're supposed to be individuating and they're supposed to be practicing making independent choices. So I, I think it is such a good fit for this age group. And um, not only is the graphic, I think, simple and easy to grasp, you know, like essentially what you're saying is I, in, in any given moment, I have a choice that I can make and either I'm going to get hooked and engage in experiential avoidance, which usually pulls me away from my values and the life I want to live, or I'm going to practice being psychologically flexible, using willingness and diffusion and making choices that move me in the direction of my values and what's important to me. Um, and I think that once you get the hang of it, which isn't difficult, I mean, it's difficult to practice, of course, but it's a simple concept, even though it's it's challenging to, to do it. It's a pretty simple concept. And because the graphic and the idea is simple, I think it's really easy to internalize and bring with you without needing a book and a worksheet. You know, it's I practice this myself all the time in the simplest little decisions, not just, you know, 
OCD exposure type things. But when I came to my office today, I had a moment to choose to either take the elevator or take the stairs. That's a choice point. And the Mm -hmm. comfortable thing to do is to take the elevator because the stairs, it's a pretty big staircase and it makes my legs burn and it makes me out of breath. And that's a choice point. Am I going to take the easy way because I don't want to feel discomfort or am I going to choose the stairs because I want to be a person who chooses to move their body even when it's hard and uncomfortable because that's what's better for me and that's the kind of person that I want to be. And and I think once you start thinking in this choice point sort of way, it, it can be something you can so easily pull out moment to moment to moment to moment because we're faced with these kinds of choices all day, every day. You know, it's not just the big stuff. It's not just the exposures. So I think, you know, this is a workbook for teens with OCD, but when these teens learn this choice point, they're going to be able to use this in so many different aspects of their life, even beyond um, OCD. It's great. Yeah, I very, very much appreciate what you add. I do completely agree with that. I think throughout our day, in every single moment, we're making a choice. Am I showing up as the person I want to be in this moment of struggle? Or am I pulling away from that? And I think um, my biggest goal, again, was to build that capacity in the workbook. One thing that you notice in the book, it is true, I think I started up front with a choice point before doing any exposures because I wanted to create more of this frame of change before developing the values-based exposure menu. Again, many clinicians, many ACT practitioners may have a different style, but for me, I have been very invested in creating this context of change, really capitalizing what values add to therapy and building every single thing from that. Mm-hmm. So that was that was why I didn't jump quickly into doing exposure. I talk about what exposure is and what ACT is about, how they go together, but I did start up from with a choice point and I built skills. I built all the diffusion the skills that are breaking down, right, into maybe 20 skills, and then we approach. The reason for that also is when creating this context of change, and when the teens were doing and they are doing stuff that matters to them, they are approaching life and they are approaching some of the discomfort that comes. May not be triggered by the obsession, but they are, you know, they are still approaching other uncomfortable experiences that show up in their way. So they're also building the muscle of handling the yucky stuff that shows up under their skin. And then in the second part of the book, then we target in particular all the OCD-related stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the epitome of experiential learning right from the beginning. And there's a number of, I mean, it's so user friendly, and there's a number of just great experiential exercises and fantastic illustrations by Louise Gardner, by the way, who goes yeah. by the act auntie. She's so wonderful. Do you have any favorites from the book? Like, could you give our listeners maybe an example of a metaphor or an exercise or something, either your favorite or maybe something you found to be like particularly powerful or effective that you use with clients? Wow. That's a tough question. That's a tough question. (laughs) Um, I I think I get asked that question all the time since I wrote a book about metaphors and experiential exercises. So now I'm putting you on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot that I'm always put on. (laughs) I see. I see. 
I think in terms of my favorite metaphors, hmm, definitely I think um, that choice point has been a highlight for me. I think using that to map every exposure session, that has been an amazing, amazing experience in the world with the teens. Um, okay, so here is one, one exercise, one diffusion exercise that has been very popular in my office. Um, and just for your audience, when we're thinking about diffusion, we're thinking about in act terms, looking at our thoughts for what they are, looking at obsessions for what they are instead of arguing, challenging, or trying to get rid of them, or trying to prove whether they are true or not, positive or negative. So the fusion is really about watching those thoughts for what they are. Um, in, the, in the process of writing this book, I was thinking, how can I have these micro nuggets for clients so they can actually come and it's easy to use and keeps them engaged? So that's why I broke down the fusion into many exercises. You don't have to. It's all under the same umbrella of the fusion. But I wanted something that keeps the teens engaged. So one of the exercises is about scrambling your obsessions. Um, so if you look at that in the chapter, right, if you have the word fear, it may be spelled like brief. Or if you have anxiety, it's also misspelled. The idea with the scramble your obsessions, if you have this fear about contracting AIDS or contracting cancer, you scramble the words. Now, for some reason, when I give teens the same menu of skills that they're going to be choosing, they usually go there. They love to be playing with these words. They get a kick from that, right? And then we're <laughs> reading them, and then they have to read it with my accent, so we tease each other. So that has been a very, really fun exercise, scrambling the obsessions. I love it. Well, there's something a little rebellious about it. You know, you, you're in school and you have to spell everything the right way and you even have spelling tests and, ooh, now I get to purposely spell these words the wrong way. I'm in, right? Another form the of choice for them. It is, it is. You know, really, they are the best consultants I ever had. I can tell you that. And they always surprise me. Um, another, another, I think, sweet moment among many I had when working on this book and also when practicing the skills was about singing your obsessions. Turns out that the teenagers are incredible singers. You know, it's just really, they come up with lyrics. I learned about how much they love um Ariana Grande, how much they love <sighs> Justin Bieber, and were choosing their favorite songs, and they were rewriting the lyrics to their obsessions, right? In fact, in the workbook, I have one of the songs that was written by a former client years ago, super sweet, related to the fear of making mistakes, but the creativity they have, and once they found something that they like, how they can actually engage with that, it was just amazing. It always blew my mind. Oh, that's so fun. That would make for a great video. Or even if kids didn't want to be on video, it would make for gr a great audio file if you could get them to actually sing. That's one of my favorites. I don't work with kids. We see kids at my clinic, but I only see adults. <laughs> but that's even as an adult, that's one of my favorite diffusion exercises. The, you know, for she's a jolly good imposter, something like that, you know, taking kind of the core belief, I'm an imposter or a fraud or I'm not good enough. So I just sang on a podcast. We'll see if I edit that out or let that stay in. <laughs> <laughs> I love 
love the realness. I love the realness. <laughs> so this workbook is for teens, but I happen to have the inside scoop that you have a workbook for adults. Yes, with OCD coming out pretty soon. That's true. Is that right? On the horizon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is it the same? Is it different? What do we have to look forward to from Dr. Z? Thank you for asking. So the new workbook coming out in two months, it really has this big metaphor about how to help adult clients stuck with OCD to make a shift from reactive moves into wise moves. If I can elaborate a little bit on that, one of the biggest questions I got from my clients, often my adult clients in general was, how do I handle that, that obsession that pops up when I am at work, when I am on my date, when I'm going to watch a movie, right? So I think they always were in that place of curiosity about how to apply active skills that we were working in the room into their lives. And I was, again, trying multiple things, um, multiple things to capitalize the active skill, the exposures. And what I found is that if you break down into micro skills that people can do, those act as retrieval cues. People remember them. So WISE MOVES is an acronym about how you can handle and how you can approach the discomfort that comes during an exposure, whether it's a planned exposure in therapy or it's a situation you encounter in life. And it's also building the skill of watching your mind, stepping back and just watch versus jumping reactively. So that's why the metaphor Reactive moves will be all about compulsions, reassurance seeking, uh, avoidance behaviors, and other types of copying stuff that people do. And the wise move will be choosing to approach, watching my mind, inviting the obsession, staying there with what's showing up in my body, checking how do I want to respond to this. So that has been a really exciting workbook to to put out there. And that will be the biggest metaphor to the whole book also. I love it. Well, you'll have to give us the links to both of these books. And you have, how many other books do you have? Two or three, yes, on emotion regulation. Tell us what your other books are. That's very kind of you. Um, One of the things when I was um, working with my mentor was really, I got surprised with how much The literature has been brutal when we're thinking about emotional regulation or in particular when we think about borderline personality disorder. If you look at all the books that have been written before the 90s, it's actually quite scary. We're looking at people as manipulative, liars, and all types of awful words. Um, But in reality, I think what we have is a person that is more like a super feeling. Instead of having an emotional dial that you can regulate to emotions, some people are just wired to have an emotional switch that goes on and off. And it just happens that they have rehearsed those behavioral responses in many settings and multiple times. So that's how people develop these chronic patterns of ineffective behavior driven by uncomfortable emotions, shame, guilt, anxiety, fear, you name it. So I wanted to deconstruct how much stigma this population has had but also, I am a big proponent that emotional regulation, it's not exclusive of clients with BPD. I think emotional regulation is something that every single human being encounters. It's a continuum. We do it sometimes effectively, sometimes we do it poorly. And again, it just happened that some clients, they develop chronic patterns. 
But I don't think we have to continue thinking that BPD is the only presentation that encompasses emotion regulation. I think there are many others in which emotion regulation is at the core of the struggle. And if it's not at the core, it can also be a skill deficit that people have. So there's no reason why we cannot teach emotion regulation to other clients that may not have BPD. So I wrote this book, Escaping the Emotional Roller Coaster, thinking more how to deconstruct what BPD usually has been associated with, how to make it accessible, and introducing this metaphor that people are not broken, that they are not defective, they're just wired to feel a lot. So that, that was the biggest thing. That's one book that I put out there. And the other one is for parents who are raising teens who are super feelers. Because I think parenting really is extremely hard, right? My heart goes to parents. I have so much respect for what you, for what they do. But I also think that when you have a teen that it's already changing because of hormonal changes and all types of things, as in on top of that, they struggle feeling too much and too quick. It's really hard for the parents sometimes to figure out how do I how do I say this? Can I say yes? Can I say no? Can they go out with the friends or not? Because suddenly you see this huge, colossal behavioral response. Um, and naturally, because parents are human beings too, they do have their own internal struggles. They have judgments about themselves. They have judgments about the teens. They have emotions that are overwhelming because they're talking to the teen or because they are feeling <laughs> guilty and ashamed about what's going on. So in the book, my main goal was to acknowledge the struggle, the internal struggle the parents have, and help them to get in contact with that struggle. And then from that, build all the behavioral repertoire they have. This is not a book that when they read in the first chapter, they will know exactly what to do with their teens. Because the book is really more, the first chapters are about, let's take a look. What's showing up when your teens say X? What's showing up when you see your teen smoking weed? What happens inside of you? What is your mind telling about yourself and about your kid? So the first five chapters are building really more diffusion skills for parents, more acceptance. Then it goes into values. And then the rest of the chapters are all types of behavioral interventions that they can practice how to say no, how to assert themselves, how to negotiate with the teens. So very different. Mm -hmm. And it's great. I've read that one too. All of your books are wonderful and we will link to all of those in our show notes. Tell us where can our listeners find you? So if people want to refer to your clinic or they want to follow you on social media, where can they find Dr. Z? Well, first I want to say thank you so much for all your support. And it's really a treat to be talking to you. I think the heaven of your work and I love that you're doing the podcast now. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, to me. yeah. So, where to find me? I will invite everyone to take a look to the website actbeyondocd.com. It's my new project. I am launching an online class on Act for OCD. And this is one of the most challenging things I'm doing in my whole life. I'm moving from Bolivia to the States. It's nothing in comparison to just creating this online class. It's really a project from the heart. It's the right thing to do. I'm all about creating resources for the clients I work with. But the best place to find me right now is in this website, actbeyondocv.com. I took a class and I have an Instagram account now. So you can also come find me there. It's actbeyondocv. 
I didn't know they had Instagram classes. Well, when you, I think when I'll you're, have to take that class. I think you're doing great. But when you're a middle-aged dinosaur like myself, I need to take a class. No, I'm the same. I, I feel way out of my depth in a lot of social media right now. I'm right there with you. <laughs> like, I, I keep torturing my students. How do you do that? How do they do this? How do they do the stories? Right? I'm going to ask this. <laughs> a real moment, a real moment. Um, but yeah, so I think the best way right now is to find me to act beyond OCD. I'm really, I'm doing everything I can to put a word out there of this new resource, which I am super excited. It's back with act skills, all apply for OCD. Fabulous. And the class, the online class, is that for providers to learn how to treat OCD or is that for people who have OCD? I got asked that question, and I should clarify, the class is for people who are struggling with OCD. However, mm-hmm. one of, yeah, that's, that's the idea, because in my heart, I'm a therapist. I do this every mm-hmm. single day of my life. Um, mm-hmm. but well, I, one I mean, of, I think one of, one of the reasons that this yeah. podcast is so close to my heart is not everybody can afford to walk through the door at a therapist's office, you know, and I think podcasts and books and online classes, you know, these are more affordable, free or more affordable ways that people can get this, you know, the mental health system is broken, right? And we need to be able to have these effective treatments reach more people in different ways. And doing this online means if they're in a rural community or they have transportation issues or they're teenagers who aren't, you know, entirely in charge of their own schedules, you know, it just makes this really powerful treatment, more accessible. So I really commend you for doing that. I think that's so great. Oh, thank you so much. And that was the whole purpose. I think I will, I want to have something that has a life in its own and that is accessible, that people can learn skills to have an amazing life and tackle OCD in their phones, in an iPad, in a laptop, in a computer, in a library. So that was the whole, it's, yeah, that was the whole premise behind this. Wonderful. Okay. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. And we will put all of that juicy information in the show notes. And it was wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much. Jill, thank you so much to you and all the team of the podcast for putting this new resource together and super excited for what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.